Catherine, have you ever tried counting hummingbirds to fall asleep? I could hear them. My goodness, my goodness. And I'm feeling sleepy. It works. It works. <laughs> oh, I'm not laughing. I'm sleeping now. Thank you. Welcome to the Hummingbird Podcast, where we use poetry to chat about creativity, process, and the mysteries of life. We respectfully acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the treaty and traditional territories of many nations, including the Anishinaabeg, the Michisaugee Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Wendat peoples. These lands are now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis people. As treaty people, we continue our journey to strengthen our understanding of our treaty relationship and of how to move forward together in a good way. We thank those who have cared for this land, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live here and connect conversation. Winter time is a time for sleep. How much do you love sleep? I love sleep. (laughs) I do. (laughs) And I need a lot of it. I've read that HSPs, highly sensitive people do require a lot of sleep because their nervous system tapped into so many things that stimulate them during the day need downtime and that downtime is sleep. And, uh, and I'm grateful to be a pretty good sleeper. I sometimes think I oversleep, but I tend to sort of find what I need with sleep. And listen, just, just how many times have I said the word sleep now? I'm getting sleepy, Jessica. <laughs> no, we can't have that. We need you awake. But I'm curious to know because I, I find these kinds of conversations interesting. How, like, what is your routine? Like how much sleep would you get in a night? When do you typically wind down for the evening and wind back up for the day? Mm-hmm. What does that look like for you? Well, it depends, but generally, you know, start to wind down between nine and 10, usually by 10, 10 30, some, sometimes earlier, I'm somewhere in the sleep zone. And I, I do read before bed. I've spoken about this in, I think, other uh, episodes that we've talked about reading habits and reading poetry and how I have learned to not read poetry poetry at bedtime because it stimulates my brain and I start uh, getting wired up as if I had caffeine. So I read, but I don't read poetry before bed. Then I just, I go into the land of Nod, as they say. (laughs) And then I'm curious, one more question. Your light for when you read. I am struggling with finding the right reading light as I'm aging, because if it's too bright, it's just not comfortable. If it's too dim, I can't see. Have you found the perfect reading light for nighttime reading? Well, I have to confess, I do something that they do not recommend when they say about having good pre-sleep habits. And I read from my iPad. (laughs) So I'm reading, I guess, the blue light. I don't know if it's as blue light as it is a phone. I'm a fan of Libby, which is the, I guess you'd say the website for the Toronto Public Library. And so that I, I also belong to the library, but with Libby, you can then get your books on your iPad and well, any device really. I just love the way that I can see that in the dark, the light coming through on my iPad and it hasn't interfered with my sleep. So I guess I'm okay. I know that's 
tends to not be a good thing to do, but so far it's been okay for me. And it's wonderful. I I'm always have books on hold and then I'll forget what I have on hold. And then it's always exciting to see what comes in and four will come in at once and I can't read them all. And uh, I do what I can and I shuffle them around. And uh, yeah, but even sometimes dipping into books, I like to dip in. I'm kind of a magpie w- with lots of books. And I used to, of course, read them and I still do with books in my hand, but, but this has been how I've been doing it, I guess, since COVID. COVID really, it became a habit where I wasn't going to the library, needed that sort of sense of being in a library and Libby became my friend. So yeah. I love Mm -hmm. that. I love that. It's interesting. Just last night, I tried reading a book again on my iPad and I haven't for years and years and years. And I really enjoyed how I can enlarge the print. Yes. Yes. There's that too. <laughs> and I think there are settings so that it's not quite the blue light. Like there's a way to dark, dark light it or something too. Like they've they've come a long way with the reading apps just to help you with all that. But I like to go to bed quite early, sometimes in winter. I'll get home from work and it's so dark and I'm just wiped right out. And so I'll have dinner and I might even fall asleep on the couch at around seven. Like that might happen. And I'm just out. I'm just down and out and then it's the the difficult climb to bed at nine o'clock it's just so hard once you've fallen asleep already on the couch but I tend to try to go to bed around nine and then because I've fallen asleep so early on the couch and I've gone to bed so early I'm typically up at 4 30 in the morning five o'clock at the latest. I haven't set an alarm since before COVID, but I love the early mornings. I love that time to think, to reflect. That's when I'm at my sharpest. I can't write in the evening most most of the time I can't write in the evening. I much prefer that writing time to be in the morning and that when I'm just coming out of that dream state because I am a vivid dreamer. I do enjoy that. But I, I could use more hours of sleep. I feel like I get around seven hours of sleep a night and I pray for the day that I can just last one more hour in bed. <laughs> but I just, I'm waking up. And, and that could be just a part of this change of life of being a woman nearing 50. I've heard that that can happen is your sleep patterns change for a little bit mm-hmm. to either more sleep or less sleep. Yeah, mine have been consistent. And I think too, I mean, I love my sleep and I'll take nine hours easily. Those times when you have to get up early, I, I can do it. I can do it for one day, but then I'll need to catch up on my sleep. And yeah, I, I wish I didn't need as much, but I listen to my body and, and because it, most of my teaching is in the afternoon or evening or things like that, I'm able to sort of have that time where I can have that bit of extra time in the morning if I need it. Because the worst thing I find for for sleeping for me is knowing that I have to get up at a certain time and knowing that I have to sleep and then thinking like that and then not being able to sleep because I'm thinking about sleeping. Right. And thinking, oh no, now I only have six hours. Oh no, five hours. You know, it's like, oh my goodness. Yeah, don't, don't do that. But uh, sometimes we get caught in that loop and that's not never pleasant. But uh, eventually I, I always do fall asleep no matter what happens. So, and I also find doing some deep breathing, like meditation techniques when I'm in that state to be really helpful. Just that sense of elongating the breath and concentrating on the breath. And, and then I find that really helps to, uh, if I'm sort of even waking up in the middle of the night and hmm, can I fall back to sleep and 
I start to do that and then I do. So I find that really helpful too. With winter comes sleep and rest is so important to the creative process. We need that that nothing time, I call it. And then sleep kind of fills us up in so many ways, allows our bodies to heal, our minds to process. And it can be a time of dreams, which can bring inspiration, which can lead to the birth of new ideas and new projects or a new way of seeing our lives. Over the years, I've always been fascinated by dreams. I've always dreamed a lot. I can remember dreams I had when I was a child all the way through. And I try to write down my dreams in the morning. They don't come out in beautiful lines of poetry like yours do. They come out in little fragments of stories here and there. But I just find them to be so interesting to pay attention to. I think so too. I think that paying attention to to dreams is a skill that needs its own development because it's not a, a direct way of communicating and much like poetry isn't direct, but it's often the power of imagery and how the images can be so many things depending on how we're looking at them. And then also there can be, if we start to record our dreams, you can see patterns. In fact, I'm thinking now, you know, it's interesting because I, as I've spoken in previous episodes, I keep a notebook by my bedside and use it as a place to write down the dream fragments that come to me, lines of poetry or images or whatever it might be, and write them down and see what I might be able to do with them if uh, if they want to become a poem or part of a poem. And we were talking about this in our last episode, and I was looking up a poem about Niagara Falls, and it took me to this link called the Niagara Falls Poetry Project. And Jessica, I'm in this Niagara Falls Poetry Project and I totally forgot. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a lot of things, but I was like, oh my goodness. And this is 20 years ago now. So um, so there, it it has been a while. Which is also incredible that I can't believe it's 20 years. And then I'd forgotten about this poem. It's never been in any of my books. But when I lived in Burlington after returning from Northern Ireland, I would go to the Burlington Art Gallery and got to know some of the people there. And then they knew I was a poet. And from there, some collaborations began to grow. And I was asked to do some poetry for an exhibition that they were doing about water. And it was called The Water Project. And it was a province-wide project, Ontario. I was meeting with the curator, George Whale. He was showing me some of the artist's work. And the first artist that he showed me was Donna Ibbing. It was an image of Niagara Falls. And an image of Niagara Falls doesn't give it justice. This was a huge project with paper and ink. And it was incredible. Like it filled the whole wall, but she, he was just showing me a representation of it on, on an image. And, and then it just, I realized I dreamt this poem last night. I couldn't believe that, again, it was like the real world and, and the dream world were, were meeting. And I was the in-between piece right there. And the fact that he wanted me to write a poem about this, everything was just kind of coming together. And so in this Niagara Falls Poetry Project link, which is, is thanks to a person by the name of Andrew Bordias, who was a librarian, got fascinated by all of the the poems that are connected to Niagara Falls. Anyone can go to the site and spend lots and lots of time there to see the the variation of poems that that he's collected over the years and but I had written this little piece about this and so maybe I'll just read a little snippet of uh, of what this is on on the site. So I'll just say last spring I was last spring as in 20 years ago, it was 2004. <laughs> last spring I was commissioned by the Burlington Arts Center to write a series of poems for their involvement in the province-wide The Water Project. One of the artists, Donna Ibbing, created an installation called Niagara 2, 
a large ink and woodcut replication of the American Falls. Very powerful indeed. The falls took up a huge portion of the wall space given to the exhibition. The poem was also inspired by a dream I had about Niagara Falls and the poet short story writer Raymond Carver. And I wrote these little notes. I said this. The night before my first meeting with the curator of the Burlington Arts Center, George Whale, I dreamt I traveled to Niagara Falls to visit an open house. A house apparently owned by the American poet and short story writer Raymond Carver. In the dream, I take off my shoes and walk in. Other visitors are milling about. It is quite dark inside. I am drawn to the back of the house. It is lighter there, and I hear an ever-thundering whoosh. When I reach the end of the house, there is no wall. It is completely open. A small backyard, and beyond that, the American Falls. Stand water-awed in Ray's backyard. No fences, no barriers. The view is breathtaking. I wake up. A few hours later, I'm sitting in George's office. While explaining the water project, he proceeds to rummage through his papers to show me some of the artist's work. The first image he shares with me is Ibbing's Niagara 2. I am speechless. There on paper is my dream. A New Path to the Waterfall was Raymond Carver's last book, a book of poetry written during the last year of his life. He died of cancer in 1988. And um, I guess I'll just read the poem now, will I? Yes, please. Okay, thanks, Jessica. So it's, it's titled, The Water Draws. Enter the open mouth. Two-storied house, once owned by Carver. Smell of ink, ghost rush of feet. Walk the path inside my dream. There, in full throat, thunder glory, the bluing, rushing band of whoosh, a new path to the waterfall. Stand water awed in Ray's backyard. The pulling wet foam's tender paths, positive ions, the water draws. Here, the tissue woodcut vista, ink is falling in Ibbing's Niagara. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. I really love how you brought together the experience of the dream and the artwork in such a on the nose kind of way for poetry. And yet it's still a very abstract poem. I find sometimes with writing poetry about art, just as with dreams, it's hard to create that experience for the reader, but you did it here just beautifully with the details that you have, for example, the smell of ink and the ghost rush of feet is an example of a time where there's one line, those two sentences are on one line, and you're bringing in those two worlds, both that experience that you had of, of being in the dream and embodying this moment and the artwork in such a lovely way. Well, thank you, Jessica. And it's interesting, too, because when you're, you know, as well as, as former poet laureate of Coburg, it's a different thing when you're commissioned to write a poem versus sort of you're just in your sort of space oh, to so explore hard. what the poem needs to be. It's a bit intimidating, <laughs> yeah. right? It totally is. And it's hard to do it well, but you've done a beautiful job here. Yeah. Well, that's very kind of you. I, I To yeah. be honest, it, it was it's a little hard for me to look at that one. <laughs> but, Tell me more about that. What what makes it hard? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's just, you know, I don't 
I'll be kind to and say nothing. <laughs> but uh, no, let's yeah. talk this out. This is interesting. We gotta go. We gotta go where this is now. Like you, you brought yeah. it in. Yeah. So what, what, what's your experience now, going back twenty years later to this poem that you rediscovered in a Google search <laughs> of your own um, that you wrote? <laughs> Well, I really like the title. I like the title, The Water Draws, because it, yeah. you know, it opens things up. And the ending with Vistas Niagara, you know, playing with some rhyme there. I don't know. I guess there's some poems that you feel, I don't know. You know, it's really, I want to be gentle with it. It, it. It's doing its what it needs to do. But the thing about it is, when I was taken to this site and then looked at the poem, to be honest, I wasn't sure I wanted to revisit it. But I did. And then here I am talking about it in the episode. So come, come on, what am I doing here, right? I, I'm being, uh, I'm, I'm confronting the past, I suppose, too. But I can still remember the scene from the dream in my mind. Okay. Yeah, I still wow. remember that sense of being. I mean, and of course, there's no house on that part of Niagara that would then back up there to to the falls and Raymond Carver did not live in in Niagara Falls so it's just my imagination doing all of these things but it was so and what does the dream visceral. mean to you well you know when I was starting out as a writer Raymond Carver was really important to me and I loved how of course most people know him from his short stories but he was also a poet and when he knew he was dying of cancer, as an artist, you know, you, your time is precious. And of course, if it's got an endpoint, it's even more precious. And he wanted that time to write poetry, not prose, not short stories, poetry. I've always loved that book, A New Path to the Waterfall. And that last poem in it is titled Late Fragment. And it's one I've memorized, and I just love it so much. And I'll just say it to Late Fragment. And you, do you get what you wanted from this life? Even so. I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. And I think about that. I mean, as a teacher of poetry, you talk about simile and metaphor and all of the things that come with it, things that you can put in your toolbox. But there's late fragment, just what call and response and starting with, and did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved to feel myself beloved on this earth. So, and that word beloved, I think, just shines through it. I hope I've recited it correctly. Sometimes you you learn poems and then your mind shifts them to how, however your mind moves into a new groove with it. So, but it's close enough. And I apologize if I've, I've missed a word or uh, done something to not honor it perfectly. But that's what's in my mind at this moment. I didn't think I'd be reciting it. So this is the hummingbird. We never know quite where we're going to go, but Carver no, is, is guiding like, us. Yeah. I feel like even with the selection of this poem, you know, you, you chose the poem because it captured the moment. I wonder if it was about having that opportunity to revisit that moment more so than the, the writing. I think so, Jessica. I think too, because it shows me that dreams have been feeding my imagination all of my life. And, and unfortunately, I had a teacher tell me that don't write about your dreams. Nobody wants to know about your dreams. I listened to that, unfortunately. And eventually, my dreams broke through to say, no, don't listen. I felt that that wasn't what I should be doing as a writer for a very long time. Clearly, I did write this poem. But prior to that, I wasn't necessarily entering in. So perhaps some of my sort of angst of what this is, is is going back to that place where unfortunately, you know, we, we're both teachers and we know how special that 
relationship is, the way that you want to honor where a student is on the journey, because it's just a journey, right? And so not all teachers do honor that. I've had those teachers, and I've lived through some of those experiences. So <laughs> I guess it's also coming back to some of those memories, too, which which are not pleasant, but, you know, they also teach us things, too, right? Right. Just like our dreams, our dreams are also mm-hmm. teachers. And I, I do fully believe that part of who we are as human is is learning about life through our waking and our sleeping time that both are relevant. How could we how could we say that one is more relevant than the other? One makes more sense because you and I can share an experience of going for a walk by the river in the daytime, not in our dreams necessarily, but in the daytime. And so we can say, yes, look what we did. We just walked by the river. Yes, we did. We walked by the river. Now, if I had a dream that I walked by the river, but I was doing so on my hands instead of my feet, and I told you about that, I walked by the river and I was on my hands, you would take a pause and wonder, now, how did that work out? Mm. Until mm-hmm. I, I I set the context that I was sleeping because our dreams defy possibility from our waking lives. But because of that, because they don't have the limitations, because we're not in control, they can teach us so much more than our waking lives when we're worried about what someone thinks, where we're trying to fit in with somebody else and, you know, match their their patterns. Sometimes we try to do that just to feel in sync with somebody. Uh, sometimes we're trying to not to be noticed. Sometimes we're trying to be noticed. And so when we're sleeping, all of that goes away. And I think for the most part, I'll have, I don't know, I don't know the research on it, so I have no idea, but I wonder, can one have an ego in sleep or is it all just an essence of who we are? And then the dream becomes the thing that we interpret to figure out what is the teaching I need to take from this to apply to my waking life. Because as we go through our days awake, we are actually not all that awake. (laughs) (laughs) And that's my experience and what I've been learning through an elder and through my own community is, is that there's so much, and I've said this before, there's just so much that I can't see. And you don't know what you can't Mm -hmm. see Mm -hmm. until somebody points that out to you. And then you go, Oh my gosh, it was like, it was, it's like those, uh, those sketches of perception where one's an old woman and one's a young woman yes. and they're both the same women. But mm-hmm. that's, that is a metaphor for what life is like. And, and every moment is like that. There's always something we are missing in our sleep and in our waking. And so we need to find a way to, to put those two pieces of information together in order to help make sense of what it is that's happening. Yeah, and so I love to dream so much yeah, too. Yes. I love all of what you've just said in that sense too of how something can hold more than what it is and how the seeing can then open up more than what it is. And then also too, what you're also talking about is attention and how walking by the river, what what are you seeing? And how the sensory world too that we're experiencing also feeds our unconscious and will come up. I mean, I think about the whoosh and the dream and just thinking about what you described about walking by a river, but then what would it be like to walk on your hands by a river? And that would be fascinating. You'd be closer to the water. Your head would be closer to the water, which is really interesting too. Mm-hmm. Just the tactile quality of that. But, and I know you have a poem too about a dream that you've had. I do. So lately I've been, I've been dreaming and 
I've always dreamed and I've mentioned this before about my ancestors and I continue to dream about ancestors and it's just unbelievable. Once I had a dream where I was sitting amongst a group of of women and they turned to me and told me that I needed, well, they're all talking and I it, it takes me a while to realize they're not talking in English. They're actually talking in Anishinaabemowin, which is Ojibwe, for those of you that don't know the word Anishinaabemowin. Apparently this is something I need to learn and that came to me in a dream. And at work in my working life and in my personal life there are cere- there's ceremony that that's part of my life and I'm finding I'm dreaming in ceremony sometimes too and that I'm dreaming ceremonies that I've never attended in my waking life and so I don't understand any of this at all but I'm enjoying just trying to pay attention and see what it is that I can learn so this is a dream that I had within the last month that became a poem or was it a vision? See, there's another conversation. Mm-hmm. Because I think those those dreams that we have that have that intense emotional resonance that wake us up and pull us out of the sleeping world, I wonder, are they actually dreams or or are they visions? And again, that's that's some learning that I'm working through, again, with lots of help from lots of people, and including an elder. So here's my poem. When... Dreaming in ceremony shows new ways to know how a story carried by spirits as I sleep awakens courage. Praying in soft circles to free fall between sage smoke and air, diving into this current of nightlife. That's the strength of stars. Wandering mind along sidewalks in a city like New York as every bus door closes, until a lost friend opens a path outside of this towering puzzle into the center we walk on foot. That's the humility of breath, floating to see clouds, more stories collect from a time long before water. Every sleep ceremony brings me closer to you and I, we travel, slumbering back and onward to who we were meant to be, each morning in the quiet, just before sunrise. Thank you for that, Jessica. Beautiful. And I love how it starts with the line, dreaming in ceremony, just as you were speaking about that. And the movement in in the poem and then the, the scope of it as well with that's the strength of stars along sidewalks in a city like New York. It's interesting because it's not New York, but it's a simile like New York as every bus door closes until a lost friend opens a path. Just our listeners can't see this, but other than the, the ending, there, there's little punctuation in it as well. The period at the end. And then when I think too about sleep ceremony, floating to see clouds brings me closer to you and I and then the pronoun shift to we we travel slumbering back and onward to who we were meant to be so that uniting in the end as well and interesting that is titled when so it's almost like then it gives me the sense too of because we're when we sleep we can't pinpoint 
the moment of sleep because we're not conscious anymore. <laughs> so I feel like the the poem when just kind of like tips us into that dream state, you know, when you're just oftentimes you kind of come out of it if you're, you know, have you ever had that feeling you feel like you're going to fall and your your limbs start to sort of twitch or something? And I think that's some kind of, I was reading years ago about how that had something to do with how often people would be in trees um, on watch and try not to fall asleep because if they did, then obviously someone could intrude. And so that that sort of is some primal sort of response in some way. But yeah, we just fall into the poem with that word when and and it's really then almost then um, a release to the dream world, but yet coming out too to the quiet just before sunrise. So mm-hmm. so it does feel like a vision. I can I can understand why you would say that. Mm-hmm. And that feeling of not really knowing where I'm going and yet feeling the significance of a moment. Mm-hmm. That's that's really the piece. So then how do I carry that into my day and notice when is it that something feels significant and I may not know where I'm going. And how do I navigate that? And what is it that I'm looking for? How am I being guided by something outside of my desire, my need to control this or that or the other thing? How am I allowing myself to enter into each moment with openness and curiosity and being awake so that I can have access to the abundance of what's out there instead of the limits that I would place on myself because I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Well, even the poem says shows new ways to know. So so the showing of it as well, which goes to dreams showing us new ways to know and how, again, paying attention to what that is takes time. The knowing isn't just uh, immediate how it can sink in and then just all of a sudden uh, snap us into a, a moment of before and after, which is really powerful. And I think in dreams, visions, the, they have their own agenda. But if we're receptive to them, so much can happen, including poems like this. So thank you for this, Jessica. Oh, well, you're welcome. My most recent one that really got me the other day was, and I didn't turn it into a poem yet. <laughs> maybe I will, maybe I won't. But I had a dream where some people I know asked me if I was okay. And I woke up feeling like an intense emotion. I thought, am I okay? I think I'm okay. Am I okay? Am I okay? And that's not something we ask ourselves too often. We, we are quick to respond when people say, hi, how are you? We say, I'm great. I'm fine. Life is good. <laughs> we fall into this pattern. Yeah. But, but when I'm home or when I'm on, like, you know, when I'm home alone and in the quietness of my own heart, how am I? Mm-hmm. And how do we really check in with ourselves to see how we really are? Mm-hmm. And I thought I need to do better at that because that's how we make mistakes. That's how we step into the sinkholes of life is when we 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 fall into thinking we're always okay and we don't go, well, but, but how am I really? And it, 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 mm-hmm. I can still say when, when people say, how are you? I can still say fine, great to not have to, to get into it, to it all. Cause are people really wanting the answer is, is another question. Yeah. But, uh, yes. Yes, um, exactly. but, but how, how can I answer it when it, when it's coming from inside of me? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, I think, the, like, you know, I th- how can you answer when it's coming inside of you, Jessica? I, you said the word yet. I think it's a poem. <laughs> I think it's a poem. <laughs> Definitely. It's, it's brewing. I can feel it. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. Well, maybe next time. Yeah. Thanks, everyone.
Catherine Graham is an award-winning writer and creative writing teacher living in Toronto. Jessica Outram is a Métis writer and educator living in Peterborough. The music has been generously provided by Shannon Linton. Connect with us online at thehummingbirdpodcast.com.